Our scripture reading this morning is Haggai 1, 1 through 11. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses while this house lies in ruin? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and all their labors. This is God's word. There are good times And there are hard times. It's burned nearly 300 structures. Russian forces are launching a new large-scale offensive. Does it feel like we are trending toward hard times? Record prices at the pump. The state's reservoirs are alarmingly low. Food shortages, inflation, invasions, lawlessness, fires, crop failures, and supply chain turmoil are all the news. What's going on? Could it be that God is using all this to get our attention? It has happened before. In the days of the prophet Haggai, Israel began a great work, but their attention was diverted and the good work abandoned. That's when things unraveled and God taught them and teaches us how to do what matters most. Imagine there's no heaven It's easy if you try No hell below us Above us only sky 
John Lennon imagined a world where people lived for today without regard for God. No heaven, no hell, and later in the song he actually says no God. The Israelites could have actually joined that chorus. How did God's people get there? Hosea 13.6 tells us this. As they had their pasture, they became satisfied. And being satisfied, their heart became proud. Therefore, they forgot me. Israel was doing well in the early days. But because they were doing well, they decided, what do we need God for? And the conquest of Israel that occurred in 722 B.C., and then the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. were the consequences of deciding we don't need God. God doesn't allow us to time travel, to go back into the past and change our choices or alter our circumstances or correct our mistakes. But God does allow us to make a fresh start. And this is the center of, frankly, the promise of the gospel. It's an opportunity to make a new beginning with Jesus in the center and do so in a way that converts our history into something that we can learn from and hopefully do better. Well, this is what happened in the book of Haggai. The people of Israel were given a chance to make a fresh start. This is a post-exilic prophet, meaning his prophecy occurred after the return from Babylonian captivity. Uh, 43,000 returned, and they have an opportunity to make a fresh start. And we're going to learn from this book of Haggai how we can make a fresh start. And as we do, I've got a question for you. What is God asking of you? About what would he challenge you today? What would he say, I want to make a course correction? Well, let's listen in to what God said to his people in the days of Haggai and do so with your ears open to how he would counsel you. So, basic outline of the book, uh, there are four distinct messages. Now, this book is only two chapters long, Haggai 1 and 2, but embedded in it are four distinct messages, and all of them are precisely dated. Uh, all four are messages from God who is actually breaking silence. This is the first time a prophet's voice has been heard in Jerusalem in 50-plus years. Now, the first message, we can actually date it because of the beginning of the book, was actually delivered on August 29, 520 B.C. The second message was one month and three weeks later. And then the third and fourth message were both delivered on the same date, two months and three days after the second. So basically, the book of Haggai is 
four messages from God, four times that God said, I want to speak to you within the span of three months and three days. Some background on the book of Haggai. We don't know anything about him. He is the first prophet to speak since Jeremiah. Jeremiah was the last of the pre-exilic prophets. And he actually spoke for God while Israel still was in the land and even a few years after that. Now he's possibly an eyewitness to the temple because in 586 when Babylon conquered Jerusalem, the temple was raised. All of the timber was burned. Stones were potentially overturned and abandoned. We don't have any family info on Haggai. And his first message is actually given 16 years after the group of exiles had returned to Jerusalem. Now let's get some bigger history here. 586, Jerusalem was just a mound of rubble. No one lived there. It was really a silent witness to the folly of rejecting the Lord. Remember the passage from Hosea? As they had their pasture, they became satisfied. And being satisfied, they became proud and they forgot about me. And you want to see how well that works out? Just look at Jerusalem, which was but rubble. Most perished. The fortunate few were actually taken as captives and they were taken to Babylon. The destruction of Jerusalem was the realization of the unthinkable. I mean, I thought God was our God. <laughs> well, when you forget about him, he allows you to see what life is like with God factored out of the equation. And it provoked profound mourning. That's the book of Lamentations and introspection. In 538 BC, something incredible happened. And I actually want to read this to you from 2 Chronicles. Uh, this is chapter 36, verses 22 and 23. It says this. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying... So this is in 538 B.C., about 50 years after the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, Darius, or Cyrus, says, I've got a message to my kingdom, which, by the way, was the world empire of that time. And this is what it said. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven. Interesting, isn't it? He's acknowledging Yahweh has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among all of his people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. So he gave a decree. He says, God has made me the king, and one of the reasons is in order to authorize the construction or the reconstruction of the temple. And so whoever is left... Saddle up and ride, because we're going. Now, he didn't go, but he commissioned them. So 43,000 left and came to Jerusalem to the scene of this dormant site, 50 years of dormancy, where a great temple once stood and this marvelous city once stood. And now it was just rubble and destruction. 
Prior to this time, people prayed toward Jerusalem. Uh, we read that in Daniel 6.10. But there was nothing there. The temple had been destroyed. All of the timber had been burned. There were stones, apparently, that were a part of the original that were still there. And so when they got there, they rebuilt the altar and reinstituted the offerings. And by year two, now all of this is coming from the book of Ezra, which gives us a historical account of what happened. The work on the temple foundation was complete. So by year two, they had actually uh, cleared the area and had constructed the foundation for this second temple that was going to be built. Now, they celebrated. Uh, wow, this is awesome. We are back in the land. God has brought us back. But there was a mixed response. There were some who remembered the previous temple. And then they saw this foundation and they cried because the contrast was so telling. I mean, <laughs> I remember the glory. And look at this. Additionally, the surrounding enemies of Israel wanted a piece of the action. <laughs> hey, we want to be a part of that temple. We've got some great ideas about ways to build temples to our gods. Let us introduce those to you. And their offer wisely was refused. But then those surrounding nations adopted Operation Frighten and Discourage. And so that was their plan, to do everything they could to discourage people. They actually sent <coughs> letters of accusation back to Cyrus. <coughs> what are you doing? And the momentum on the project died. Now, according to Ezra 3.7, they had acquired lumber in those first two years. But because of part of the message where he talks about, you know, go get lumber, apparently the lumber was repurposed. In fact, things were getting so difficult, so challenging, the word on the street was, you know, <clears throat> now <clears throat> it's not really the time to build the temple. You know, effort spent on the home front is really the best allocation of our resources and our energies right now. Unspoken, the economic challenges we face require all our attention. That's what we need to do. And so while the foundation was laid by year two, we now arrive at year 16 and God speaks to talk to a people who are in trouble but don't understand why. In the sixth year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, so Haggai receives a message that originates with God. Now, this is a letter from God. To these people. Now the word is addressed to the leaders. It's 
to Zerubbabel, who is actually a great, 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 great grandson of David, and Jehozadak, who is a great, 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 great grandson of Aaron. And so God says, I've got something that I want you, Haggai, to say to the priestly leader and the governmental leader of this nation. Here's the first part of the message. Thus says the Lord of hosts, this people says the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. The Lord knows what the polls are saying. You know, if you were to poll people on the street, is now a good time to build a temple? No, 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 no. Now the polls are wrong. <laughs> That's what it's showing. Notice, by the way, that God says this people, not my people, because they're not acting like my people. Because they're saying, now is not the right time to honor the Lord. Maybe later, but right now we've got some other priorities. This is a case of delayed obedience. Have you ever dealt that with that with your kids? <laughs> Come here. Okay. But they don't show up. Come here. I'm coming. No, you're not. You're sitting there with this thing. Delayed obedience is disobedience. And the people are saying, you know, it's not optimal time. I mean, we're, we're pro-temple. But now's not a good moment for that. <laughs> and God is in essence asking, so when will it be easy or convenient and the time will be right? We don't have the bandwidth or the headroom to engage with God's stuff right now. We're doing everything we can to survive. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, the reason God is talking is that a people who made a great start, they came back to the land, they started the foundation, are now at great risk for the fact that they have logged in 14 years of excuse making. Is temple building really that important? It's a commentary on what's important. But here's something that's a first glimmer of light. God doesn't make appeals when all is lost. He's saying, I want you, I want you to recalibrate your compass here <laughs> on what's important. He's going to walk them through something they should know. God doesn't do that unless there is potential for us to get it right. And that's what's going on here. He says, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now, this is really interesting, isn't it? Here's, here's the contrast. If now is not the time to build God's house, how is it that you seem to have found more than enough time to outfit your own house? House building seems to be okay, just not my house. <laughs> and by the way, he says, you know, you dwell in your paneled houses. 
I don't, this is speculation on my part, but we know they acquired the lumber on the second year that they came back. But what we're going to see is God says, you need to go up to the hills and get lumber. So the lumber's gone. Where did it go? Well, I can't say for sure, but <laughs> they are all dwelling in wood-paneled homes. Did the people say, you know, this temple project, I mean, I am so committed to the temple project, just now is not a good time. Well, what should we do with the lumber? Well, maybe we can use it on our houses so it won't go to waste, and then when it's time to build a temple, well, then we can, we can get some more lumber. <laughs> now, therefore, there says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but you harvest little. I want you to do some self-evaluation. I want to see if you can connect the dots here a minute. There is a disproportionate ratio between your field development and your yield. You're putting in all this effort, but you're not getting much back. Could it be there is something you need to realize? You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. In other words, the farming crisis has spread to other domains. There's a shortage of all the basics. Food, drink, clothes. What's going on here? Why is it that you can't seem to get past the shortage, the limitations? He says, consider your ways. I want you to connect the dots. What is going on here? Now, it is not beyond God's ability, because we're going to see as it shows up in verses 10 and 11, God is the one behind these things that are happening. God is the one who has introduced shortages, food shortages, clothing shortage, supply chain crisis, inflationary thing by which you deposit money and yet it's disappearing. All of those things are the product of God. Now, God is not doing that because he hates them. He's doing this because he loves them, because he wants them to draw a conclusion. It's really hard for me to read this book and not wonder about what's going on in our nation. You know, is God trying to get our attention? How far will it have to go before people realize, I need to think about my priorities? He says, and he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. That's the inflation factor. Thus says the Lord of hosts. He says it again. Consider your ways. Evaluate what you're doing. Some sort of inflationary dynamic is eroding the purchasing power of whatever money you're fortunate enough to acquire. From God's perspective, some self-examination and situational reflection is going to pay handsome dividends. You need to ask a question, what is God telling me in light of these setbacks that I'm seeing? There is a very clear conclusion they should be drawing. Now you're thinking, what is this clear conclusion? The answer is found in Deuteronomy 28. In fact, you cannot understand the book of Haggai. I'm not, we're not going to turn there at the moment. I'll read you a couple excerpts. 
But you can't understand what's going on here in Haggai unless you understand Deuteronomy 28. For Israel in the land of promise, there is a clear connection between well-being and commitment to live in a way that is pleasing to God. For example, in verses 1 and 2, he says this. Now it shall be, if you will diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. And then in the next 14 verses, he spells out what those blessings are. And those blessings include prosperity and productivity. You, Israel, if you go into the land and you keep me in the center, then you are going to experience the blessing of God. But in verse 15, there's a contrast. Now, this is Moses talking to Israel before they go into the land. But it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes with which I charge you today, that all of these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And then he spells out in great detail numerous curses that include economic hardship, drought, crop failure, exactly the things that the people at the time of Haggai are experiencing. Israel should have had a light bulb moment. They should have been able to look back on what's going on in the last 14 years and go, ding, 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 Deuteronomy 28. Everything we're experiencing, when you line it up with Deuteronomy 28, what you're seeing is our priorities are out of line. That's what's going on. So when he says, consider your ways, basically what he's saying is, I want you to connect the dots. These circumstances for Israel in the land are the kind of circumstances that, you, that will define your life when you decide to factor me out of the equation, when you decide to go all John Lennon. Now I have to balance something here. Uh, you can look at what's going on in Haggai and you can say, well, Jim, this sounds like what you're saying is if you follow God, everything's awesome. And if you don't follow him, life will be bad. And I need to balance that by saying not every setback or hardship is a sign of God's displeasure. For example, in the book of Job, it's precisely the opposite. Job encountered incredible hardship. And that was a product of the fact that God was proud of him. So don't assume, like Job's friends, oh, you're going through hard times. I guess God must not be happy with you. But in this instance, in Haggai's day, and by the way, sometimes even in our day, God will use hard circumstances to get our attention. And I say sometimes in our day because of 1 Corinthians 11, 30 through 31. Now, this had to do with people who are partaking of communion which is designed to say God first, Jesus first, and yet that was not their heart condition. And Paul said this, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. And there were some even died from this. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. God says through Haggai, go up to the mountains, bring wood and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified. 
Now, going to the mountains wouldn't be necessary if the wood was still on site, which we know it was in year two based upon Ezra. By rebuilding the temple, it will make a statement. We want to please God. We want God to be glorified. It's a way of saying, we live for God's pleasure. Which, by the way, for God to say this, go up to the mountains, bring wood, rebuild the temple that I may be pleased. If your heart is, I want to please God. I live for his pleasure. And he says, well, go up to the mountains, bring wood, rebuild the temple. That's great news for the person who wants to please God. Because he just told me this is the way I can please him. He says, you look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. <sighs> Legitimate expectations for what one effort, one's efforts ought to yield are consistently disappointed. And God identifies himself as the one behind the current economic crisis. Now, it can be a good thing. When we encounter a crisis, when that crisis drives us to God. And that's what's going on here. And I do wonder, are we on a path, even in our country, that is not dissimilar? Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house which lies desolate while each of you runs to his own house. God's reason for prescribing diminished returns is not to get back at Israel. You know, they were going through tough stuff. But that was an act of love, wherein God is trying to alert Israel to a high-risk situation that they have embraced. They've come to accept as the new normal that, you know, God will get around to him, but we got to deal with the challenges we're facing in life right now. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew and the earth has withheld its produce. Precipitation has been affected by their malign priorities. The fertility of the soil has been similarly affected. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. All three major crops were affected, which worked hardship on men and made it hard to raise cattle. God's determination is the source of the drought. But according to Deuteronomy 28, it is a perfectly predictable determination. When your priorities aren't straight, this is what you can expect of Israel. Why the building of the temple? What's so important about that? This is the only building in Jerusalem that says, we want God to be our center. The temple is a way of saying, God matters. By the way, this was actually God's idea. God said, I want you to build this. Uh, it started with the tabernacle, and then the temple was built as the upgrade for the tabernacle. And in Numbers 35, 34, he says, I, the Lord, am dwelling in the midst of the sons of Israel. I want you to build a structure according to my specifications that is designed to communicate God is in the center of this people. Wait a minute, wait a minute. 
God is in the center of a people, a holy God amongst an unholy people. How does that work? And the answer is that the temple also had a prescription. Namely, I want you to be able to sacrifice the blood of an innocent as a window into what I am eventually going to do with my own son. I can dwell in your midst as an act of grace. And that's what the tabernacle and then the temple communicates. God in the center by grace. An innocent's blood was shed and his unbroken body was consumed by fire to solve the sin problem. And the temple declared the basis upon which God blesses people through grace, namely the substitutionary death of an innocent. So by ignoring the temple project, the people were actually saying, now is not the time to make God the center of our lives. <laughs> that is really dumb. God is the source of everything good. So why would you want to just push him to the side when he is the source of all good? And he's willing to give it to you by grace. Not because you deserve it, but because he's good and he loves you. When you say, now is not the time to honor God, and you say, now is the time for me to take care of me, you are saying, me is more important than God. And that's idolatry. Now, this is a really tough question, but I'm going to ask it. What in your life is crowding out God? I'll tell you one of the things for me. Um, now, different people wake up different ways. I'm going to tell you what happens to me. I can wake up, and it could be four in the morning or whatever, and then my brain just kicks into gear. And I can't stop it. <laughs> it's thinking about stuff. And it's very easy for me to uh, go downstairs, fire up the computer, and start cranking it out. What I need to do, and I need to get better at doing, <laughs> is shut that thing off and say, God, what do you want to teach me today? Some of you are familiar with the blank check prayer, which is basically saying, God, give me whatever you think I need right now. And that's what I need to do. That's a way of saying, God, I want you to be the center. And as it pertains to me, I want you to be the starting point for my day. And I have to work at it every day. I have to remind myself, God, I want you to know that looking at whatever on the internet does not trump you. I want to hear what you have to say to me. So I read his word until he tells me something. That's what he's talking about here with the people. What in your life is crowding out God? Delayed obedience is disobedience. Is there something God is asking of you, something he wants you to do, 
and you're saying, well, God, I, I, I want to do that, but I need to get to this and this first. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Well, I really want to do what it is that you want me. I, you know, I am so committed to that. <laughs> I just can't do it right now. Good intentions don't cancel <laughs> delayed obedience. Your actions show what matters to you. I fully intend to do X, but there are several things I need to do first. Well, that tells me what's most important, the things that you have to do first. So here's the connections for Israel. What, was, what were they supposed to do? He says, you spend a lot of time on your projects and none on mine. Does this not say something about what really matters most to you? And they should have extracted from that. And you're going to see next week what the response is. We actually have a record of the sermon response. How do they respond to the message? And then how did God respond to their response? Basically saying, I want you to analyze what you're spending your time on and ask the question, do you see me in the center? Connection number two, your circumstances are a perfect match to what Moses identified would occur when your priorities are out of line. You know, I have a pickup truck. I brought it brand new 20 years ago, and I'm still driving it. But yesterday... Uh, I went and put some more antifreeze in it because apparently it's got a leak somewhere. So I have, you know, I have to get that attended to. But when God says to us, you know, I'm having to put more antifreeze in here. I think maybe you've got an issue that we need to deal with. Your circumstances are a window. What you're doing with your time is a window into what matters. And if there's a leak somewhere or something broken. Do you realize what was happening in Israel? God was saying to them, you are actually going down the same path your forefathers did. They decided to factor me out of the equation. How did that end? You keep going and you're on track for exile number two. God is saying, trust me, you may think you're watching out for your own interests, but you're doing the exact opposite. It won't end well. It's time for a fresh start. Well, how about us? What can we extract from this book? Well, first off, I would say trust God when he tells us how things will end when he is not the center. Uh, here's a passage from Jeremiah. Your iniquities have turned these away and your sins have withheld good from you. Sin never promotes our good. It, it may not look like it. It, may, it presents itself as something very desirable, but we'll, it will always subtract, take away, diminish. So trust God when he says, keep me in the center. It's for your own good. We think that going our own way will work out well. It won't. Our culture is increasingly singing the song of Lenin, going their own way, and it won't end well. 
Trust God when he tells us what will benefit us. When you live for God's pleasure, that's what drives everything you do, then God becomes your partner. I've quoted this verse to you before, but it serves it again. The eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the whole earth that he might strongly support those whose hearts are completely his. If you will live for God's pleasure in all things, God is your partner, and he will do amazing things. Our prayer is answered. According to 1 John 3, 22, he actually says that those who do his commandments and live to please him are the ones whose prayers are answered. Our true good is promoted. We end up doing what will endure if God is in the center. So what is God asking you to do today, this week, right now, that declares he has first place? What are your reasons for saying now is not the time, I can't do it right now? Will you choose to believe God and make a fresh start in whatever he is asking you? Yes, Jesus, I want to start over with you in the center. If your heart is saying yes to that question, then I want to pray for you right now. Let's bow our heads and I will pray. Father, you know the state of every heart in this room. You know the places where you are not in the center. But you aren't sidelining us. Your spirit is fully capable of communicating to us. And I know that there are in this room some who would say, there's an area where I need to make a fresh start with God in the center. Father, make it very clear what they need to do and then help them to be obedient as a first priority to the doing of what you ask. We want to be a people of whom you would say, I am pleased. Just as you said to Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We want to be that too. And I pray that for every soul in this place, that wants to make a fresh start in an area and get it right with you in the center, that you would supply whatever they need to be able to do that and do that well. We desperately desire to be a people who live for one thing alone, and that is your pleasure. In Jesus' name, amen.